This is Bucky Stanton, and welcome to Technology Storytellers, brought to you by the Society for the History of Technology. Today I speak with William Story, professor and chair of history at Millsaps College. William is author of Guns, Race, and Power in Colonial South Africa, and Science and Power in Colonial Mauritius. Story discusses the environmental, technical, and racial shaping of South Africa by the infamous imperialist Cecil Rhodes, the socio-materiality of statues, racism and its political consequences, and lastly comments on writing a critical, co-production-centered biography of a so-called great man. Just start us off by, you know, jumping off from that kind of statue idea and, and bring us into the, the landscape of a Cecil Rhodes uh, statue, not just the, the physical landscape, but the, the story behind Cecil Rhodes and the story and history that you're developing about how we shape South Africa. Yeah, I'd be glad to talk about it, Bucky. Uh, Cecil Rhodes uh, is very much in, in the news these, these days after the George Floyd um, protests uh, ignited in the United States. Uh, there were also demonstrations in uh, Oxford, England, uh, on the high street, uh, right in front of uh, Oriel College, uh, where there's a statue of Cecil Rhodes. And um, there is also uh, there are also two uh, statues in uh, Cape Town, in the suburb called Rondebosch, which is where the University of Cape Town is. Uh, one statue was removed uh, a few years ago, and uh, there's still another um, place called the Rhodes Memorial, where there's a, a, a figure of Rhodes uh, in, in relief, um, also uh, overlooking uh, the Cape, and so. Um, I want to say, uh, you know, first of all, uh, a word about my background. I am uh, not from Oxford, England. Uh, my grandmother's family was from there, uh, but I don't want to, uh, you know, come across as someone uh, from the outside uh, who has these sort of expert ideas that need to be imposed on anyone in Oxford, England. Uh, and I feel the same way about uh, Cape Town. You know, I visited. Cape Town often for research. Uh, I've been welcomed there uh, many times, uh, as I have been in Oxford. Um, and uh, these debates about statues and about uh, memories of uh, people who've been significant in setting up the structures of society that we have today have a have a local uh, nature to them. And I, you know, I hesitate to uh, kind of make pronouncements. Um, I live in Mississippi right now. We have our own problems uh, with symbols and, uh, and racism. Uh, I'm from Long Island, New York, uh, which is one of the most residentially segregated parts of the United States. Uh, so, you know, who am I to make these, uh, these pronouncements, right? But what, what I want to do today is just to give, uh, give uh, listeners a sense of, uh, you know, how a historian like me might approach an artifact, um, a statue, uh, kind of like Cecil Rhodes' statues um, in England and in South Africa, and uh, and what they might what they might tell us. Uh, how does the historian approach these things? Is is the main thing I, I want to try to get to get across uh, to uh, to the audience. So um, I'll tell you about my first encounter with the Cecil Rhodes uh, statue. It was 1998. I was I was doing the research for my book about guns uh, that you referenced, and and I was being hosted by the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Cape Town. And every day I would walk from our little apartment down in Rondebosch up past the very English houses and tennis courts and streets named after Livingston and Stanley and go across the rugby pitch of the University of Cape Town. And that's where the, uh, the famous statue of Cecil Rhodes uh, was located. Uh, and um, he gazed across and the inscription on the statue um, was taken from Kipling's eulogy of, of, of Rhodes and it talked about his, his vision for, uh, for South Africa. And I, I was, um, upon first encountering um, Cecil Rhodes, I, I was really uh, startled, uh, I have to say, uh, knowing uh, the things that historians know about Rhodes's uh, career and his vision, it was, uh, you know, startling to encounter a statue that was uh, of him that was just an ordinary part of the landscape there. Uh, 
much, much in the same way as, as people report to me upon visiting my home state of Mississippi, of their, their surprise, uh, their shock that we have this um, state flag that has a Confederate um, battle flag on it. Uh, it's something that uh, maybe some of us have just gotten used to. And, and so one interesting thing for uh, historians to think about uh, with a Rhodes statue is um, things, material objects, things that historians uh, take seriously um, can often fade into the, the landscape, fade into the woodwork, and are only noticed by certain people. But then circumstances can shift and um, they become lightning rods. They become uh, sites of uh, contest uh, you know, for people who are struggling to overturn uh, inequities and uh, you know, inequities that, that have deep historical origins. Um, and so this uh, shift um, has taken place um, you know, just recently in the United States with the George Floyd protests resulting in uh, many statues being pulled down. Uh, in South Africa, the, um, the statue of Rhodes uh, that I'm referring to, the one that was on the campus at University of Cape Town, uh, it became this, the subject of uh, protests a, a few years ago. Um, the most, the best known uh, protester uh, was a, a man, uh, his name was uh, Chumani Makwele, and he was a member of uh, a political party called the Economic Freedom Fighters. And, and one day he, uh, he uh, stood out in front of the uh, Rhodes statue and he, he, he picked, he had a portable toilet in his hand and it was full of shit and he pitched it onto the statue of, of Rhodes and um, you know what what did this mean well uh, Chimani uh, Makmale was a, a he was a well-known uh, protester uh, he had been arrested um, a few years earlier for giving the finger to um, South African President Jacob Zuma. And uh, shortly after this, this food throwing incident, as it was called uh, in South Africa, he um, uh, got in some trouble about uh, harassing uh, people. Anyway, at, at that um, demonstration, uh, it looked superficially that he was just defacing a statue, right? He was just throwing nasty stuff on it. But what, what, he's, what he was calling attention to was continued lack of infrastructure, uh, particularly in the, in the townships in South Africa, those um, uh, locations that were uh, segregated um, uh, in the uh, earlier part of the 20th century and where many African people uh, lived. Um, in his, uh, in his uh, community, um, people still did not have routine access to running water and to toilets and they'd been given these portable toilets. And so uh, he, you know, thought they were horrible, which they were. People left them out in the streets. Uh, you know, kids played with them. Uh, the um, a few months earlier, protesters had actually uh, picked these things up and thrown the contents on the uh, Western Cape um, Premier uh, Helen Zelay uh, in a similar kind of protest, only against a you know, live government uh, authority. Um, so why, why call attention to infrastructure? Um, this, this gets into a, a really interesting historical problem that, that relates to Cecil Rhodes. Um, there's, a, there's a really nice um, set of articles in uh, technology and culture in uh, the most recent issue about what historians uh, from the Tensions of Europe project are calling grand challenges. Uh, what, you know, what are the grand challenges um, that uh, engineers and creators of technologies uh, have faced? And, you know, they're talking about big famous projects, right? I mean, the atomic bomb, the Apollo program, the Green Revolution, what are we going to do about climate change, right? Uh, in South Africa, one of these big grand challenges uh, was announced in 1955. Uh, with the Freedom Charter of the African National Congress, uh, which 
advocated rights, uh, political rights uh, for African people, but made specific pro promises about infrastructure, uh, that people would have housing, that they would have security, they'd have better roads, they'd have hospitals, and so on and so forth. And uh, these promises had gone uh, unfulfilled. Uh, as had the much bigger project, a uh, promise to uh, nationalize the mines and to give uh, African people back the land that had been stolen from them under colonialism. And it's, it's really Cecil Rhodes's legacy uh, in creating this, uh, uh, this landscape in which uh, you know, white and prosperous people uh, get access to infrastructure and African people uh, don't. Uh, that these protesters were, you know, rightly calling their attention to. Um, ultimately, the university decided to, you know, to take down the statue and remove it. It's uh, it's been uh, it's been put in storage, and uh, and you know, good good for them. Um, as a historian, I'm not in favor of uh, destroying things, but I, I am in favor of uh, uh, recontextualizing them or even just putting them into storage until you've reached some some you know, agreement in the local community about what to, what to do uh, about them. Uh, I think that um, uh, part of the protests against roads also have to do with um, some general backlash uh, that there is uh, in, uh, around the world against how after 9-11 in the run-up to the last Iraq war, uh, neoconservatives were uh, saying things about, uh, saying nostalgic things about uh, about imperialism. Uh, you know that, uh, well, maybe the Middle East, you know, would be somehow better off if imperialists ruled them again. You know, so the U.S. should go in there and do that. Um, but you know, for historians who are familiar with the history of imperialism, you know, we know that people were tortured, right, in the name of truth. Uh, just like what happened at Abu Ghraib. I mean, it happened for hundreds of years before that under imperialism. Uh, you know, we know that, uh, you know, people build walls and they displace entire populations uh, in order to uh, achieve uh, security, uh, right? But this is a, a way that rights are taken away from many people. Um, and we know that, you know, the, the rule of law can be suspended uh, too under imperialism again, ostensibly for, uh, for security, but it, it, really, uh, it really hurts people under, under colonial domination. You know, so historians um, have been aware of this, uh, but many of, uh, and have been aware of this for a very long time, uh, but much of this has come up politically in the last you know, 20 odd years as there's you know, been some pushback on the left against, against neoconservatism. So that, I thought maybe um, it would it would help um, our uh, you know discussion of you know what historians uh, think about Cecil Rhodes to you know just talk a little bit about his vision uh, you know and, uh, and and what he actually did uh, to formulate that vision and then uh, and then to uh, to set it. To set it in, in motion, you know what it was what it was like actually on the ground. Um, these uh, these visions that people are protesting against today, um, they have a you know very uh, specific rootedness in, in, in the history of imperialism. Uh, in, in this case, in, in southern Africa uh, in the late nineteenth century. Yeah, please give us that uh, kind of fascinating overview, and if you could just. It really draw out for us how his vision shaped the environmental and technical or was shaped by environmental and technical concerns and how this impacted the, you know, the, the racial inequality that, that you're described. But please continue. Yeah, well, I mean, Rhodes is famous for some things today, right? So probably he's most famous for endowing the Rhodes scholarships at Oxford uh, through the Rhodes Trust. Um, that was his big, uh, his big bequest uh, at the end of his life. Um, he uh, not only made possible the Rhodes uh, scholarships, uh, but also that building at Oriel College um, that has the statue uh, that people are 
protesting today, um, and a number of other things at, at, at Oxford. Um, so he's remembered for that, uh, just like the other, you know, uh, robber barons in the United States are remembered for their philanthropy, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation, Vanderbilt University, Duke University. Uh, that was Rhodes' uh, contribution. Um, Rhodes, uh, uh, one of the, uh, the way I explain Rhodes to, to my undergraduate uh, students um, is to, um, to say, you know, he's, he's almost like, um, uh, he, he's so influential in terms of business and politics in South Africa um, that it, it's almost like imagining that, um, you know, uh, Bill Gates were the, the, the president of the United States and the king of Canada, you know, the, the neighboring northern country, right? So, uh, you know, Rhodes had his own more or less private colony in what's the uh, Zimbabwe. Um, He's the founder of uh, one of South Africa's most influential companies in the late 19th century, the De Beers uh, Consolidated Mining uh, Company. Uh, and he was also the prime minister of the Cape Colony from 1890 to 1895. And um, in the years before that and after that, he was a very prominent member of the uh, Cape Colony's parliament, right? So he's very influential politics and in, uh, in, in business. Um, and his, uh, he had a, a grand vision of, uh, of the British Empire um, that develops out of the context of growing up in, uh, in England in the 1850s and 1860s. Um, he, his, his, his racial views are characteristic of, uh, of, of you know, people in, in, in Britain and other parts of Europe and the United States at that time. Uh, when there's kind of a, a conservative backlash against liberal philanthropic uh, humanistic approaches to uh, emancipated slaves and to African and Asian people. He's, he's, he's one of those. Um, he migrated to um, uh, South Africa in uh, 1871 when he was only 17 years old and um, worked in uh, Natal on the uh, coast of South Africa and uh, worked on a farm with his, his brother and then migrated to the diamond mines uh, the year after. Um, and then after that, went back to Oxford uh, to receive an education uh, where he was influenced uh, by uh, classical, classical studies. Uh, He's very fond of uh, Marcus Aurelius, he, he's, most of his life he, he carried around a little uh, little copy of uh, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Um, he uh, he was uh, not an especially you know successful or brilliant student. He was at, at Oxford. He's he was what was called a pass student. You know he's someone who just got through. Um, and he's uh, he's influenced um, uh, well to to some degree. Uh, not directly, but indirectly by, uh, by the thinking of, uh, of John Ruskin, uh, who uh, was, was advocating for uh, get, getting back to a simpler, more medieval um, craftsman-like uh, view uh, of the world. And in 1877, uh, Rhodes uh, was a young man. He was going back and forth between uh, Oxford and South Africa. Um, and he, uh, he wrote what was called his Confession of Faith, in which he um, outlined his desire to, uh, for, for Britain to continue to become uh, the, the, the world's most powerful country. He disparaged people who fought against this. He hoped that the United States would be reunited with Great Britain, that's what he says in this document. And the way of going about making Britain more powerful um, is to create a secret society modeled on the Jesuits uh, and uh, the, this, this group of, of men would work secretly together to further the objects of, um, of the British Empire. And he, he wrote multiple, uh, multiple wills over the course of his life. 
And the last one, obviously, is the one that creates the Rhodes uh, Scholarships and the Rhodes Trust. But um, this is the first one. And he, um, his, his vision of promoting the, vision, the British Empire by the creation of this group of, uh, of young men uh, remained you know, very consistent over the course of his lifetime and ultimately you know, germinated in, in the, Rhodes, uh, the Rhodes Scholarships. So um, that's kind of his, his broader vision. Um, he's not just uh, a business man who wants to make money, or at least he doesn't say, say that. He's, he's got this broader interest in British power um, and in, in yielding this, this personal power. Uh, so that's, that's the broader vision, but there's a, a way in which his, his narrower vision plays out. Um, there's kind of the, what I call the day-to-day or um, ordinary practicalities of getting, getting one's vision accomplished. And this was done at the diamond fields around uh, what's today Kimberley, South Africa, uh, which is in the, um, the central, uh, north central part of, uh, of South Africa. Um, there were uh, four diamond mines there. And Rhodes was, um, uh, became involved in, in mining and one of them in particular was called the De Beers mine. And there's, a, there's an environmental and technical problem uh, with, with uh, or, well, there are multiple environmental and technical problems uh, with mining uh, diamonds. Um, diamonds come from um, uh, kind of a, the pre- pressurized molten uh, lava that kind of shoots, shoots up through the earth uh, millions of years ago. And um, in, in South Africa, this location in, in Kimberley, the, the, the diamonds or uh, mines are formed in the shape of pipes, right, that go up through the ground where these eruptions took place. And the first people who discovered diamonds in South Africa found the diamonds scattered around on the ground. Uh, these are called alluvial uh, diamonds. Um, and eventually people figured out where the diamond pipe was. And the De Beers mine and these other mines are sited on top of these pipes. Um, the government of the time uh, required uh, people to uh, divide up the, the open pit mines into small claims. And this, these presented some technical problems that the deeper the mines went, um, the more likely it is that your dirt will collapse onto someone else's claim or your, the pulleys that you're using are going to, you know, interfere with operations in someone else's uh, mining area. Um, And so Rhodes uh, was involved in consolidating the mine claims uh, through uh, political pressure to change the rules and also by working with uh, with other businessmen. And that's a a very short summary of a really long and complicated history. Um, But the, the the way his vision plays out um, goes kind of like this. Um, he makes these individual decisions about his business, right? Um, and it's a classic case of how market-based decisions do not really produce the best society, okay? So, um, uh, you know, often people kind of mischaracterize the arguments of Adam Smith, right? And they say, well, Smith says that individual market-based decisions are going to make the best society. Well, Smith was aware of potential negative um, uh, social problems that might result uh, from these things. And so we know today, you know, that there are externalities, uh, you know, mines uh, make terrible pollution. Um, um, uh, and, you know, the tailings uh, from uh, the, the mines in South Africa, or uh, you can still see them piled up uh, you know, around the mines uh, today. Um, these kind of market-based decisions can lead to monopolies, which is what Rhodes eventually wound up uh, holding. Uh, he became the, the leader of um, De Beers Consolidated Mining Company, which, uh, which did, in fact, almost monopolize uh, all diamond production in Southern Africa from that time forward. Um, 
uh, you know, but market-based decisions can uh, lead to social injustice too. And, and so here's, here's, how it, here's how it worked. Um, there, when Rhodes was involved in the merging of De Beers, it became clear that the business could no longer operate on the basis of these big open pit mines. And instead, um, tunnels had to be dug under the mines in order to get at that, you know, that the pipe of diamonds, the, the, the cylinder of diamonds that's under the ground. Um, eventually the, the diamond mines went to the depth of one kilometer under the, under the surface. You can go visit Kimberly today. There's a, there's a museum uh, you know, where you can see the remains of the open pit um, Kimberly mine. That's the other big mine in, in Kimberly. Um, and you can look at this and it's really, um, it really calls to mind, you know, what David and I calls the, the technological sublime, right? And it's just this awesome big hole in the ground. Uh, so uh, I think it's a mile, it's a mile across, uh, half a mile wide, something like, something like that. Um, and um, what, what Rhodes did um, is not only, you know, arranged for tunneling under the mines, he, he hired an American engineer uh, named Gardner Williams, educated at Berkeley, had been active in silver mining in the American West to design, uh, design the tunnels, design the system uh, under the mine and uh, also to put in place a big uh, factory near the mine where the diamonds would be uh, washed um, and uh, sorted. And what Williams also arranged for is the creation of what were called closed compounds for workers. Um, these are um, uh, structures that look almost like prisons, uh, so they have walls on the outside with no windows. Uh, the windows all face in to a courtyard. They're covered with um, very fine kind of chicken wire. Um, so the African workers can't, you know, pitch the diamonds uh, over the walls to someone on the outside. And the workers coming in um, have to sign uh, six month contracts. Uh, many of them came from very far away, uh, recruited and to some degree uh, coerced uh, by colonial authorities and the chiefs who were working with them. Some of them came as far away as, uh, from as far away as uh, uh, Mozambique. They, um, uh, so Rhodes uh, created, you know, what historians of technology could, uh, could think about as a technical uh, system, a, a network of people and objects to create this, uh, uh, very highly productive uh, diamond mine, and when I when I think about when I think about what Rhodes did in overseeing all this, his his vision and these day to day decisions uh, that he made resulted in what um, uh, histor environmental historian uh, Bill Cronin calls the disassembly line. Um, if you've read his book, Nature's Metropolis, he talks about the slaughterhouses of, uh, of Chicago being disassembly lines. Uh, and um, this is applied to history of mining by uh, Timothy Lacane in his book about the copper mines out in Montana. Uh, the book's called Mass Destruction. Uh, this is exactly what Rhodes is doing. So he's not only um, got a disassembly line in which, you know, rocks, or chipped away at by people under the ground and then loaded on trolleys and, and taken up and uh, you know, uh, run through machines that pulverize them and, and, and sort them. Um, but what he's also doing is he's, he's disassembling Southern African societies to make them more susceptible to sending laborers to the mines. Um, so he's, he's the, the big merger takes place in 1888. In 1890, he's elected prime minister of the Cape Colony. And one of the most important things that he did was to change um, the laws relating to African landholding in the Cape Colony 
um, that made it easier to uh, require African people to pay taxes and therefore to need cash, which was to be gotten in places like the diamond mines. And as their societies are further disrupted by other initiatives of Rhodes uh, and imperialists, um, there are produced many incentives you know, for them to go, uh, go work for Rhodes uh, on the diamond mines. Um, he tried to save money by having fewer European workers. Uh, European workers held many of the skilled positions in the mines. Uh, they particularly came from Cornwall, uh, where there's hard rock mining in the copper and tin mines down in the southwest of England. Um, they came from other places too, Australia, the United States, all over. Uh, but what Rhodes was trying to do was to have fewer um, of these expensive white workers and more of these less skilled uh, African workers uh, in, in his mind. And so his, 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 his disassembly line is um, something that not only takes place at the site of production, uh, but since he's a politician, it takes place um, at the site of um, the state, you know, just producing uh, these, these laborers uh, uh, becomes a, 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 a racist uh, project that benefits the mines. Um, he's also got a, um, a, a vision of, you know, geography and, and, and space uh, in, in South Africa that's conducive to this too. Um, so, um, he was involved in uh, supporting the construction of railways, yeah. telegraphs, um, all of which are used to, to funnel uh, laborers to the mines. Um, he's responsible for uh, supporting the creation of these closed compounds, which are uh, one of the earliest examples of very strict uh, urban segregation in South Africa. Uh, they became a model for closed compounds in the, much, um, in the much bigger gold industry that emerged in South Africa in the late 1880s and 1890s. It's a, it's a, very, um, it, it's a very disturbing story. Um, it, it's, very, it's troubling to go through, you know, Rhodes's, um, the history of Rhodes's business and, and his papers knowing that he's, he's making all these small decisions, right? Um, you know, at no point does he say, well, I'm going to create the disassembly line, right? But you can go through all these small decisions that an individual makes in his business and see how they're, um, they're moving in the direction of, of creating this unjust society that uh, and the, the infrastructure that's thereby created is still, it, it's still tangible, it's still present, it's still observable in, uh, in South Africa today. It's, 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 this is like tracing the, um, you know, the ancestry of, in, of, uh, of injustice in the industrial era in, in South Africa. And you really can put a finger on, on Rhodes and his colleagues um, at, at De Beers uh, and, and say that they were responsible for, uh, for much of this to a great extent. Now, and he did work with a lot of other people. He had a lot of, a lot of supporters. He was not an engineer himself. You know, he didn't know how to build things. In fact, one thing that's very interesting is I, I, I have not come across evidence that he ever actually went down in the mines. Uh, mm. in I mean, it's possible that maybe he did, um, but I think what he may have realized was that the mines are quite dangerous. Um, there's a, there's a big, um, fire in, uh, the De Beers mine in 1888, right at the moment, uh, when the merger is about to be finalized, killed several hundred people. It's one of the worst industrial accidents in South African history. And I think Rhodes and his colleagues were also aware of just how tenuous this whole project was, that all it would take you know, is one, uh, one disaster, uh, one uh, social revolution, and it one one something that could that could take it all right down. Um, I think historians of technology are often aware of that too, uh, just how 
um, these, these networks of, of people and things that are created uh, can, be, um, can be dismantled just by kind of pulling out one, one component of them, right? Um, so this is, uh, this is why, uh, you know, I think the protesters against Cecil Rhodes are, uh, are onto something. I think that he uh, turns out to be a very uh, relevant historical figure when we're thinking about um, some of the ways in which uh, social injustice has, um, uh, you know, become part of uh, the, the structures of, of ordinary life, you know, not only in South Africa, but, but in many other places too. Um, if you don't mind me asking, is there a connection to this kind of space making aspect of, of the story you're telling and the concentration camps developed in the Boer War? Uh, just, just out of curiosity, because I, I read a, a great book called uh, Barbed Wire, an Ecology of Modernity by Reveal Nets, who is actually a, a Hellenistic map, historian of Hellenistic mathematicians, uh, famous for his work on the Archimedes Codex, and a very complicated book about Greek geometry and deduction. But he also has this amazing book about space making and technology and barbed wire and how its centrality to several big moments. And it was there I learned about how awful the concentration camps were in the Boer War. And a lot of this almost disassembly line compound idea uh, seems to kind of jive with that, that disruption and destruction of South African society in an earlier colonial period. Yeah. yeah um, I have not come across anything specific about Cecil Rhodes, you know, commenting on, on the concentration camps in the Boer War. However, I do think that uh, you may be on to something, you know, the creation of uh, penitentiaries, of closed compounds for workers, of, um, uh, of these, you know, these confined spaces uh, has a lot to do with the uh, development of the idea of the concentration camp. Um, the Spanish used them against Cuban rebels in uh, the, 18, the early 1890s, if I'm remembering right. Um, the, uh, the British famously used them uh, and they cleared the countryside of Boer civilians uh, as part of their total war against uh, uh, the, the Boer uh, commandos in, in the Boer War. Um, they were, um, uh, but yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I can't really comment on, on, on the specific uh, connections. Uh, Rhodes actually spent, uh, he, he arranged for himself to be this is going to sound funny. He arranged for himself to be trapped in Kimberley when it was besieged by the Boers uh, so that he could keep an eye on uh, the mines and be kind of the, the leader of the community. Um, he made an absolute nuisance of himself to the commander of the British garrison at Kimberley. Um, the Boers, uh, for their own part, um, resented Rhodes uh, a great deal. He had uh, worked um, in the Cape Colony, in Cape Colony politics, uh, he had worked in alliance with leading uh, Afrikaner uh, farmers uh, in the late 1880s and early 1890s as he's trying to enact his, his vision. And in 18, uh, late 1895, uh, he was part of attempting to stage a coup in the Boer Republic of the um, Transvaal uh, in Johannesburg. And the coup failed. Uh, it was known as Jemison's Raid. Jemison was, uh, was Rhodes's uh, friend who uh, used uh, Rhodes's private army, really, is what it was. The British South Africa Company ruled Zimbabwe, and these are their soldiers uh, who came down and were um, trying to support a coup in Johannesburg and got surrounded by the Boer people. So that the first time a Rhodes statue um, got um, demonstrated against in South Africa is in the 1930s when that statue at the University of Cape Town went up. Um, uh, there were Afrikaner students who protested the statue uh, saying that this, uh, this fellow was, um, uh, you know, betrayed us, uh, basically. He, uh, he, he, he did us wrong um, and, uh, you know, should not be memorialized. Uh, That's in, so in, interesting. 
that that happened. And that's so interesting. And I think it's worth noting that he existed in a in an already racist society uh, with many different facets and one in contention with even people of European descent or mixed European uh, descent like the Boers and who descend from Dutch settlers, if I remember correctly. And that that uh, I particularly also in it just the disassembly really works here really quite well. I was going to ask you a question about, you know, what concept wraps it together for you. But I think that really shows how exact why exactly this is important and why Celso Rhodes was able to have so much power. And I'll just skip to our kind of last question here, because I think it's a great we're already on the topic. And the topic for me is that this history shows how modernity this vague term, this shift to industrial and factory life, but generally follows some historical pattern where capitalism and imperialism created these power relations centered on technology, industry, expertise, and economy. And we're able to create a great person, hard air quotes around that, through the way they centralize decision-making and the way that these systems empowered people in certain positions there. And right in all these examples and these shapings and then even the question about the Boer war which i just thought up of you were not prepared for you show how they're really connected he had this like amazing centralized influence uh wielding an army going about being a king in one place and a leader and elected in another and it reminds me of other work that people have talked about characters like this uh, in my notes i have that it reminds me of latour's work on pasteur and how it really doesn't show all it shows that book uh is that Pasteur, the man behind the process of properly uh, develop, producing milk in a safe way, was able to act as this great man because of an accumulation of power and certain networks and societies. And so my question to you is, how do, we, how do we correctly historicize and have these conversations in our field and in the public historiography about great men who are, as you've so eloquently and poetically discussed, are abominable in many ways in their beliefs, grandiose in their, you know, in their shaping the world. But when we look at the historical material reality, it had a huge impact. And like, like you said at the beginning, there's no way to escape his influence in a lot of ways. So how do we, you know, it, it's a little bit bigger of a question of do we tear down the statues? Because, you know, I think as historians, we all have a, a bit of a different perspective on that about how we can recast and redo and remake history. History is a process. But how do we correctly historicize this conversation? How do we how do we agilely move through it? Yeah, I, I'm actually, um, you know, when I think about my graduate student self uh, back in the late '80s and early '90s, I, I'm actually surprised that I should be involved in writing a great man biography at all. Um, but you know, really part of our Part of our training as 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 uh, historians in, in uh, recent times uh, is to is to emphasize social and cultural and political history and the history of mass movements and history from below and uh, you know interviewing and working with uh, more humble people. Um, in, in, you know, in, in my own case, um, Cecil Rhodes is even more surprising a choice uh, because he is. Um, uh, he's an unpleasant figure. I, I think a lot of biographers are drawn to write about people they admire. I have not found much in the records of Cecil Rhodes that would lead me to admire him. I mean, there's really just nothing, no, nothing there. There's no, there's no wonderful, you know, love letter. There's no uh, act of personal charity that just seems, I was just, it's just nothing. Uh, so he's a very difficult person to spend time with. Um, so, so why should I do this? I mean, of all, all the things that I could, I could do, uh, you know, why, why, why do this? Um, it, you know, it relates to his, his, his historical importance, uh, you know, as, as we've been discussing. I actually got started on this project before um, all the controversy over Rhodes and, and his statues. Um, so, you know, I didn't get into it for that reason. Um, but the one way I would, I would um, put this into historical context 
um, uh, is this. When, when I first started thinking about doing a project on roads in the, in the early 2000s, I was um, influenced by um, some of the uh, work that was coming out around the concept of co-production in, in STS, uh, you know, particularly uh, Sheila Jasnoff. And um, we have, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a literature and history of technology in, in STS about uh, how, um, you know, this concept of co-production works, you know, how do visions of society and uh, politics uh, relate to, um, you know, the specific uh, visions of, um, of technology and, you know, visions of uh, geographical spaces uh, that, that, uh, that, that groups of people might, might have. Um, and, you know, for the most part, you know, at least in the early, in the early 2000s, much, much of the conversation about co-production had to do with um, larger scales, right, of uh, organizations, institutions, uh, you know, that were, you know, involved in doing this. So, you know, here I'm thinking about, say, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for, for example, you know, is one side of, um, uh, you know, uh, writing about and researching, researching about co-production. But what I saw in Cecil Rhodes uh, was an opportunity to uh, look into how that issue of co-production plays out on the most fine-grained individual level. Um, it's been um, uh, it's been an eye-opener. I, I mean, I, I, I see that um, I'm going to be able to make a contribution to that to that literature move, moving forward. Um, it's been challenging. Uh, Rhodes's papers are um, not complete. You know, so there, there's no, uh, you know, there's no diary um, of Rhodes. A lot of his correspondence was uh, was destroyed in a fire um, at his home. Uh, some of the papers of his uh, company in, in Zimbabwe uh, were kept in a vault in London, uh, and it was flooded when a bomb hit it during the Blitz in, uh, in, in World War II. Um, but what, I, what I'm starting to get a sense of is you know, how, how, how co-production works on the individual level and uh, how those, those individual market-based uh, decisions uh, about technology, environment, and all the networks uh, of, of people and things that are involved in them uh, get made uh, can show us how, how co-production works on, on that ground level, on that real micro level. So, you know, in that sense, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm very comfortable with doing a study, a study like this. I, I didn't get into it because I, I really wanted to do a great man um, biography. Um, it's not, uh, uh, you know, the most uh, recommended thing for historians to do. Especially um, when we, we've spent so much time in the history of technology trying, we've spent nearly half the field's history since the, you know, days at Cranesburg, uh, trying to deconstruct this idea. And that's why I find your work so, so compelling is because it might just actually show me how we can have a more agile discussion about bad historical characters that are in the popular vision justly viewed in a bad light without having what I consider maybe a shallow or uh, not shallow, but just kind of limited response. And what you're proposing, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is really perhaps by taking this co-production, this idea that like science and technology and the imagination of the society are all part, all connected, all working together to, you know, act as a giant sieve to material reality to produce what is and what is society, not separate. Um, if we could apply that more aptly to a, a person rather than an institution or a massive thing, uh, perhaps we could really do that critical biographical work that you're discussing. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with you, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, there, there has been, uh, there, there have been, uh, you know, um, there, there are many possibilities for, you know, for revisiting many of those, those great man histories. Um, I, uh, I hesitate to, to dismiss any particular 
uh, you know, approach or, or, or method that might, might still yield some results. I mean, it's entirely possible to go in and look at these, you know, classic figures like Thomas Edison or Henry Ford, who are, you know, almost contemporaries of, of, of Cecil Rhodes and reevaluate them uh, from, a, from, 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 from new perspectives. I think, you know, all of us historians know that, um, uh, you know, as, as, as we're sorting out what it is that we want to write about, what, what it is that we want to learn about or, or, or teach about, that we, that we will make decisions about what, what we think is more important or less, less important. Um, you know, in this case, uh, uh, you know, I don't think there are very many people who would argue um, that, that Cecil Rhodes was an unimportant uh, person who's, who's, who's not worth uh, addressing you know, in, in, this, in this type of history. Uh, that being said, um, this, is my, this is the first time I've written a biography, and I'm finding that uh, even though you know, in graduate school we, we ran down the writing of biographies, it's a very challenging uh, sort of project to do. Um, uh, the challenge uh, for, for me has been just trying to decide how much of the context actually has to go in the story. Um, in a sense, I'm writing this book because I, I want to have a different socio-technical approach to Southern African history. Uh, but I, you know, I can't actually rewrite the entire history of 19th century South Africa either, um, nor does my uh, editor uh, want me to do such a thing. And when can we expect that book about Cecil Rhodes? Uh, I'm, I'm still working on the manuscript now. Uh, I'm hoping to, uh, to be uh, done with it maybe in about a year's time. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on to Technology Storytellers today, William Story. Well, I, I appreciate the invitation to, to talk, Bucky, and I am um, very glad that you're contributing your, your talents to this, uh, to this podcast. I think uh, a lot of us historians um, in the midst of the COVID-19 uh, have uh, come to uh, rely more on um, podcasts and Zoom conversations and um, getting connected uh, online rather than in person. Uh, that being said, I do hope to meet you one of these days at a shop conference. Or Someday or when we go back to, to material reality. Well, thank you. That's so right.